The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I'm going to assume because you're here, your bedtime is not 7 o'clock. But I know I'm taking a chance on a Wednesday night. It's been a long day for, I'm sure, many of us. But I appreciate you being here. And uh, let me add, just a moment ago, uh, let's add Gwen Johnson to our prayer list. She's having a difficult time. She's in tonight. As you don't see her there, she's in tonight. And so we'll be praying for her and continue to pray for her and all the others that we mentioned a brief moment ago. I'm excited. I don't know if you are. Philip said I got him excited, so that kind of scared me because I may may not deliver on that. But I'm really excited about studying this this particular account, the Gospel of Mark. Um, It's something that I have been looking into for really several months since Cliff first even mentioned anything about this. I kind of got in my mind what we might do. I was trying to think about some things that maybe we haven't done recently around here. I know Cliff has been in 1st and 2nd Samuel uh, since about the latter of 2019, as best I can tell. Of course, we we got a little break in there. Uh, COVID, different things came up, so that that got a little more difficult. And he's been doing a great study on Sunday mornings, really about the history of the church in one sense. But uh, of course, he's been going straight from the scriptures. We really need to in that. So I've been appreciative of those studies and any others that we've been able to be a part of for a while. Um, I have taught recently here the book of Philemon and the book of Jude. Both of them were single chapter books, if you want to see it that way. And I know based on the amount of time it took me to get through those single chapter books, you could possibly be terrified about what we might do with Mark. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't take that long, but I'm not going to try to make up a story and lie and claim that we'll do this in 16 exact weeks or anything like that. It is a 16 chapter book. Uh, but we're going to break it a little bit a little bit smaller bites we'll probably do paragraphs some weeks we may be two or three of those paragraphs even uh, but we will be looking at it from that perspective and just for your information uh, this is my calculation i, I not only can't count well but uh, i may divide it up differently as i read through it, the book once again but i find at least 64 paragraphs in this so that doesn't mean it'll take 64 weeks by any means it doesn't need to take that long Uh, But there is a lot to chew on in this book. And that's some of what we talked about uh, Sunday was a week ago, as we like to say it around here. We kind of went through and answered these questions in what I called then my introduction to the introduction. So tonight is more the official introduction to the book itself. Uh, But we ask, why study the Gospel of Mark? To summarize that, basically we study it because sometimes it is neglected. Sometimes it's overlooked. Sometimes it's overlooked because of its brevity meaning it is a short book. It is the shortest of the gospel accounts. We'll kind of prove that with some numbers and figures here in a few moments. But uh, sometimes it's because of brevity, and some people may look at it and say, as one brother so to me, there's just not a lot of meat there. Well, there's plenty. It is a gospel account, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and so it needs to be studied, but it's oftentimes neglected. Uh, how will we study this book? I went through those three things with you, I think, in in pretty good depth, we're going to take view, at least I would like to, every time we get to a section, a paragraph, a chapter, the whole book, however you want to view that, in each one of those uh, narrower to wider spans, I want to look for at least three things in every one of those contexts. And the main thing is we want to look for the meaning in it. Of course, we're going to have to read, study, and examine the book in order to get to the meaning of the text. And that's what we're going to do. For the most part, we'll be going through it verse by verse, and uh, kind of phrase by phrase and pulling out some of those things that uh, may not be easily recognizable, but they're all a part of the study that we do. 
Uh, secondarily, we want to definitely see the man of the book. As I've told you before, that is, that's Jesus. No matter the other characters, which we're going to have an extensive list of those as well tonight, no matter the other characters around here, all of which, to one extent, we could learn some lessons, we could learn some application for ourselves. If we do not see Jesus in the text, then we've missed the whole point of the book, and so we'll be sure to do that. And then we're going to take note of the, me the message behind that. That's the third way that we'll examine this. And that is hopefully, not necessarily tonight in the introduction, but hopefully once we get to the text itself and start digging through it on next week, Lord willing, we will leave with kind of some take-home points. There may be one, there may be several, but making sure that we get the message of the text to go along with the meaning after we have focused on the man. So we want to do that. Now, as far as what is required, and I didn't change that that word, I started to say requested, but I think it'd be required of us as a student, not required of me. But my suggestion for what we might be able to do as we go through this study is threefold as well. One, you, I would request or require uh, maybe that you take time and read the entire book of Mark at some point during the study. You'll have more than adequate time. Obviously, if you read just a chapter a week, you would probably at least have that long, so 16 weeks. But if you can read through it, uh, one time throughout our study, that would be beneficial. Um, if you're the kind of person who can do that one sitting, which I'm certainly not, I'm a terrible reader, you're going to know that. Uh, but uh, if you can do that in one sitting, if you're somebody who typically would read a novel or a longer book, you might be able to do that. So you can do that, and that will be very beneficial. But, but just give that a, an opportunity, a, a try. Um, secondarily, if you could, read each chapter that we are in, just the one we're in, through once a week. And so... If we're in chapter 1 for multiple weeks, then you might read chapter 1 three times, something like that. And then the last one of that that I really would think would be kind of the, the simplest to do is try to read those, those texts, those paragraphs. For example, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, make up one Greek slash or English paragraph. And so just read the paragraph every day. It wouldn't take but probably less than a minute in most cases. Some of them will be a little bit longer, maybe two or three, but it wouldn't take long to read through those paragraphs. And I think that would be a good place to begin as a Bible student. Now, as far as the introduction itself, I answered the question a week or so ago, uh, how would we introduce the book? And I typically like to introduce a book from two perspectives. On one hand, we would definitely want to introduce it internally. And to me, that's the most important, by far the most enjoyable for me anyway, as I may have shared with you several times. Oftentimes, it's just, just my observation that oftentimes that you can get a lot of information to introduce yourself to any Bible book, particularly any of the New Testament. It especially applies to the epistles of Paul. However, I've discovered it applies to these Gospels as well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. We're in Mark. But if you'll read the first three to eight verses of any book, you can get a really good idea of what to expect, what's going on, and what you're going to be looking for as you go through that. And in one sense, it's almost like Mark, in his brevity and his immediacy, which we'll mention later, he almost, in my mind, accomplishes that in the very first verse. So just one verse, when he lets us know that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's what the book's about. That's it. It's summarized. It's laid out. And that's what we ought to be looking for throughout the rest of it. And that's, that's always my main focus is the internal introduction, evidence, whatever you find. Very insightful. In addition to that, we're going to take some of that opportunity this evening 
Sometimes you can as well benefit from, if you can't do but one, you do, the, do this one. But you can also benefit from some external evidence. That may be some, some books, some commentaries, some other resources that you might have access to. And many times today that can be done online or whatever, where you can dig in and you can find out something about the, the, the penman of the book. In this case, it'll be John Mark. Or you might find out something about the people to whom he is writing. Now, John Mark is not writing to a particular city or a particular congregation in this, but many epistles are written in that way, such as Colossians, written to those in Colossae. So you go in, you find out about Colossae, you find about the culture and the times and the, the geography of it, and sometimes you can gain a lot from that. That's just for an example. But you can learn a lot from that. You can consider the time frame in which it was written. Of course, all of these New Testament letters are going to be written somewhere between the time, basically, of the death of our Lord, which was 33 A.D.-ish, if you don't make those adjustments that aren't worth talking about, or to the distance, the farthest distance, you might suggest, someone might say, well, it goes as far as maybe approaching the end of that first century, 90-something-ish A.D. Uh, this book will kind of fall in the center of those two dates when we get to it. But that's the type of things you can be introduced to by looking at external evidence. And some of that is evident anyway, even on the internal side. If you read and study through the book of Acts, particularly if you're doing anything that relates to the apostles, Paul, Peter in this case, John, Mark, you can find out a lot about what was going on with the time frame and the order of which uh, they were going from city to city following the journeys of Paul, for that example, or whatever the cultures there evident, such as the church at Ephesus and the idolatrous worship that was going on there. Just, just several examples. But you can learn a lot from that. So we're going to kind of begin with that external introduction. And if we don't get through this tonight, we'll probably just call the dogs off and move on to the internal anyway, because that's of utmost importance nonetheless. But thinking about some of the things that I consider when I look at the gospel accounts. We asked that first question a week or so ago, you know, why study Mark? You know, there are four gospel accounts. There's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John. And the reason you might eventually want to study all of them is because they make up a complete summary of what we know and what has been revealed in the life of Christ. And so to really get a full view and a full picture of who Jesus was, then you're going to want to study and read and study and examine all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, but keep in mind when you do that, that each of them write from somewhat of a peculiar, ex uh, a peculiar experience or peculiar perspective within themselves. Now, I, I wanted so badly in my alliteration, what I want to do, I wanted so badly to come up with a word that ended an I-T-Y or a T-Y for servant. I couldn't do it. I looked everywhere. I called everybody I knew. I couldn't do it. And I had one guy say, well, you're the best. If you can't do it, it can't be done. But if you can come up with that, I'd be happy. But Matthew tends to speak or preach or teach from the perspective of proving the fact and establishing the fact that Jesus is royalty. He is that King of kings. He's that Lord of lords. And Matthew presents that. And he writes to a more Jewish audience. And of course, they're familiar with the hierarchy of the Jews and the royalty lines that came through them. And, and so he writes to them from that perspective and from uh, that evidence in the pen. Of course, God inspiring him to do it, but he, he proves that fact. Skipping over Mark for right now, Luke uh, speaks from the fact that Jesus is humanity. 
And he speaks many times, and, and this is the way Jesus referred to himself often as well, that Jesus is the Son of Man. That is, he is God in the body. He came in human form and human flesh upon this earth to live and to suffer uh, like as we are and ultimately to die a death like we do. And he wanted to prove that, Jesus' humanity. And there's a certain amount of, you know, just connection, I think, that we get in that, just seeing his human side and seeing his frailties come up. And, and Luke does that, a couple of the other accounts as well. But you remember especially that account in Luke chapter 4 where he meets with the devil and the devil tempts him for that 40-day period and tempts him in those ways. And, and his humanity shows through there, but at the same time, he continued to prove he was the Son of God. Then in the last account that we find in, in order here at least, John's account, he proves that Jesus is deity. And that is so important. I can't tell you the number of groups that consider themselves today religious and even Christian groups, one that's uh, very prominent in our area as far as the, the amount of time that you may come in contact with this group. Uh, they'll tell you right quick that Jesus was a great man. He was a prophet. He was all these wonderful things. But there's one thing they say he was not, and that is they say he was not God. Why, there's not one thing in any of these gospel accounts that prove that fact. There's not one thing that even indicates that he doesn't carry with him because God ordained it upon him the same authority as God. But yet at the same time, John really puts a focus on that. Depending on how you count that out, out of the roughly, and these are estimations and countimations. There's no such word, but I like that, countimations. If you calculate or count up the number of recorded miracles. Now, Jesus, sometimes it would say he healed the, he healed the multitude. So obviously we don't have a head count for that. But if you count the number of miracles as recorded in all the gospel accounts summarized, he committed to doing about 32 to 36 miracles. John records, depending on how you count those, between six and eight of those. If you include his own uh, resurrection, that's eight. If you uh, change things up, you may get six. But six, seven, I would say is probably seven in the middle. He commits to proving those and giving evidence to that. <clears throat> in uh, the next to last chapter of his book, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, to prove that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He's deity. So that's kind of an overview of them. So why choose Mark? Because Mark, in some senses, does something, as you can see by that illustration, altogether different. And that is Mark chooses to present Jesus as the servant, the great, humble servant that he was. And there's one text that reveals that is what I would say probably is one of three key verses that you find in the book of Mark, and that's found particularly in Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. The King James translation, I don't know if you can see this, I intentionally made it uh, look this way, I guess, but uh, the King James Version uses, instead of the word serve right here, it says minister. That Jesus for the Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but to minister to those that he gave his life ransom for. Uh, the New King James is what is quoted here, and it actually uses the word serve, because that's all that it is. The word minister there literally means to serve. It means to attend to some type of duty. And that's certainly what he did. And we see Jesus throughout the gospel accounts really doing this. But Mark spends so much time, in one sense, proving that point. Now, just to move quickly, there are several mainstays, as I've called them. There's my alliteration again. But several mainstays that you find in Mark that 
If you knew nothing else, these are kind of handy things to be on the lookout for. You know, you put out that boyo or boy, whatever that is, be on the lookout. Uh, several things you can notice. The first one that really came, comes to mind and is obvious is the way that he deals with the pacing, is what we'll call it in a few moments, but the pacing of the text. He uses the Greek word for immediately and also the word forthwith, straightway, or other translations of that, some 41 plus times throughout the text. And I say 41 plus because, and this is just me trying to be a nerd, I guess, I've seen the number 41 everywhere that I've looked. Every resource, everything I picked up, 41, 41, 41. I actually hand counted those and I found 42. So it may be 41, it may be 42. Uh, but a, a number of times, as a matter of fact, out of the 59 times that you find the word immediately, or at least the Greek word that we translate into immediately, straightway, or forthwith, out of the 59 times you find that, Mark uses it 41 or 42 of those times. And so Mark repeats that word with emphasis, as a matter of fact, that seems to really draw out what I would call the pacing of that book. Now the key verses are found in Mark chapter 10, verses 43 to 45. We looked at verse 45 a moment ago, Jesus came to serve. He was here not just to be served, as we do Him today, but also to serve them and us. The key message in this comes down to the fact that Jesus is the perfect servant of God. I mean, He, he came to not only be a servant, but give us that perfect, that is a word that means complete example of what service should look like. And so that's kind of one of the beauties of this book. Not only are we learning so much about the life of Jesus and, of course, the gospel that is brought, the good news, the euangelion that he brings on, but we're also learning at the same time how we ought to act and react toward our surroundings, toward the society upon which we live, which we ought to be servants to in that sense. And then the great appeal, this is some of the other key verses. I said there'd be three, three verses. There's really kind of three sets in my mind. One is Mark 1, verses 1, then this 10, 43 to 45. And then this group of Scripture we'll see later from chapter 1 as well, 14 and 15. And that is the message or the appeal of this book is to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, keep in mind at that point in time, the kingdom, if you will, the church, ultimately the church on earth that could be transferred into heaven eventually, uh, it had not yet come. And so there was certainly a need for repenting for that kingdom and repenting and believing the gospel. And that's the messages that John the baptizer would speak as we see in the first part of this book, in this first chapter. It's the message that Jesus would continue to repeat, not only as recorded by Mark, but also in the other gospels. And so if you just kind of overview this book again, there are a few things that you find here that are presented in a different way. For example, the one here to the left, he, he uses, Mark uses examples of his works much more than he talks of his word. You know, you go through the other gospel accounts, particularly Matthew comes to mind in that, and you have presented there the Sermon on the Mount. You have the Sermon by the Seaside. You have many instances when Christ stops and intentionally teaches and preaches to certain groups. And of course, Mark is not void of that, but Mark does not emphasize that. He emphasizes the works that he do. In the same way of saying the same thing, he emphasizes service over speaking. 
He emphasizes his deeds over his discourses. And he just continues to bring that out. He continues to show us, again, that, that major message of this, that Jesus is the perfect servant of God. So that's kind of some of the mainstays in Mark. And I know some of you are trying to copy this down. Uh, I'll be happy to give my slides or, or notes to anybody. I don't have a copy of them physically tonight, but I can get some of that as I know I'm moving very, very quickly. Um, and the way that I see this external introduction, and there are a number of things. I, this list has been, been as long as nine. I cut it back to five, and we're, here we are at six. But there are basically these six things I think are the most important that we can learn about that gives us a taste in our mouths as to what Mark is going to be like. And the first thing I, I want to consider with you is who Mark was. You know, we look up here, I don't know what your printing or your translation slash printing of the Bible says, but mine, mine has a heading here that part of it means nothing, but it says, The Gospel According to St. Mark. All right, now from the, percent, from the perspective that Mark was a saint in any man's eyes, According to a title, I about wanted to drink that uh, hand sanitizer right there all of a sudden. It looked good. <laughs> but according to the title of man, that means nothing. But from the perspective that Mark, <coughs> like any or all of us, could be sanctified, that is to be delivered, separated from our sins, then yes, there's some sanctity to that. But that physical title wasn't and doesn't mean anything. But what about the actual person? I won't go through all the information I have here. <clears throat> I've got a, a number more details as well. But from what I've gathered, we're most likely, and I'd say probably, when we consider Mark, who we're really speaking of is John Mark. We're speaking of John Mark. And there are several instances throughout the book of Acts, as a matter of fact, and a few other places where uh, we're introduced to John Mark, and we learn some things in detail about his character, who he was, what he was able to do. Uh, it appears, and this is definitely external evidence, not internal, but it appears at least perhaps that John Mark came from a wealthy family, which I even saw one writer, I'm not sure how to back this, my disclaimer, okay, I don't know that this is accurate, but I, I assume he had some evidence for it because he was so detailed in his explanation of it. But John Mark's family may have owned houses in Cyprus as well as in Jerusalem. And of course, in that day, to own any, any amount of property, any, any homes or any, any structure, for that matter, in some instances, any clothing that was of any value, it would have taken some some sort of wealth to obtain that. And so John Mark, it seems, may have been a part of a group like that. And they, he even went as far, and others, others spoke of this as well as I was kind of digging around, that his family may have been the host of what they, I don't know they would have called it this, but this would be the term, thank you so much, for some uh, religious groups today. That in John Mark's home coming up, as a, he's a younger man and young adult, they may have hosted a, quote, house church. And, of course, I don't think there's anything uh, terrible about that term other than the way that's oftentimes abused. But you know as well as I do that in that day, there were very few gatherings that took place in some sort of external, established, you know, purposeful structure like we have. We have a church building where the church gathers to meet. 
or sometimes they used the synagogues and other public venues, but oftentimes they did go from house to house and meet in those places. Um, it does seem, however, from evidence, Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, that Mark, John Mark was at his mother's home, apparently, uh, when they were praying for the release of Peter from prison. You remember that miraculous event is what it turned out to be, at least providential event, as uh, we discussed on Sunday afternoon. Uh, but the brethren were gathered there in one place, and they were all praying for the release of Peter. And ultimately, Peter was released. Remember, the account goes down that, in a summary of it, Peter is approached by what seemed to be an angelic figure, and they just basically said, get your shoes, let's go, you're getting out. And so he walked straight out of prison. And uh, the only person listed there by name, surprisingly, in the group, in Acts 12 and verse 12, was John Mark. And so that proves to some extent his faithfulness. To some extent, I think it later is going to prove his affection or and or appreciation that may, he may have had for Peter. And some evidence shows, and we're not down to the bottom of the page that would discuss this, but some evidence shows that John Mark, being inspired to do so, but he wrote, a lot of what he wrote was basically the account of what he either witnessed and or was told by Peter. So there was some kind of relationship there. Similar to the relationship that the Apostle Paul had, say, with Timothy. And that he kind of had a protege in Timothy. And they stayed nearby each other. Another account that we have, and this is not found in any of the other Gospels, but in Mark chapter 14 and verse 51, right there, third, third paragraph down, John Mark may be the young man that was seen fleeing uh, from the arrest of Jesus and to the point that the, the language of King James at least describes him as running away naked. Now, for that, that meant their outer garment was pulled off. Uh, they would have called nakedness anything that revealed their knees, as a matter of fact. Uh, we've come a long way from that, unfortunately, in some cases. But uh, he, he fled from the scene, which John Mark, not being a member of the apostles, certainly would not have been condemned for any means by that because you know as well as I do that all the apostles really, it seems, saved John to one extent all fled as well. At least they kept their distance from him. But he may be the same person. Uh, what we do know as a fact is later on, John Mark being a close kin, probably a cousin if I've laid it out right. I used to say nephew. I'm, I'm thinking more maybe a cousin now. That's just up for discussion for anybody. Uh, but John Mark was a, at least a, a kinsman to Barnabas, who in one of Paul's, fish, Paul's first missionary journey, as a matter of fact, he elected, Barnabas did, nominated slash elected for John Mark to go with him on the journey. And we find that information in, in various texts. But what we ultimately find out in Acts chapter 13 and verse 13, which is not far spent uh, of him being selected in 1313, but by 1536 through 39, John Mark... I quote a southern phrase, tailed and ran. He got out of there. Now, we're not sure why that was. There's no internal evidence for that. Uh, we know it happened, but there's no evidence as to why that happened. Um, if it is the case that he came from that uh, Cyprian, I can't say that word, but that Cyprian area of Cyprus in the Old Jerusalem, if he came from that wealthy family, then just the fact that he was about to face the mountain ranges that the Apostle Paul was facing in these journeys could have been enough. I, I don't know. I wouldn't suggest anything potential in that, but we do know that he was a part of that journey, fact, 
we do know that he left that journey. Fact. We do know that later Paul and Barnabas would argue against taking him with them again, which Paul stood Barnabas for that. Ultimately, John Mark goes with Barnabas. We don't have any real record of exactly the work they'd done, although we know it was a lot of good work that was done, apparently. But then Paul would come to the, closer, the closing days, at least, of his life, and he would then, in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 11, speak of how that Marcus, John Mark, was profitable to him. So that relationship was essentially uh, bound back together, I suppose, by that. Now, as far as other external evidence, um, they're different first century-ish writers, such as Papias, Clement of Alexandria, and others that actually do speak specifically about John Mark and the work that they claimed that he did. And I put claimed in quotes as well. But they claimed they did, and they say that he was something of an interpreter for Peter. Now, I don't think they mean by that by any means language, but the fact that maybe he is sitting down to pen this gospel based on his experience and account in following Peter through his journeys, just as Timothy would have done with Paul and, of course, Silas later with Paul as well. But don't know that that's fact. I will say this. Anytime you cross paths with a first-century historical writer, uh, even if they're not doing that from a religious perspective, oftentimes, oftentimes, their information is very accurate uh, just simply because of the fact that it could be something that their, their grandfather sat down or maybe their father sat down and told, you know. Uh, my father's old enough. Uh, he can tell me about experiencing certain things in his past where he saw that. He was there. He was a witness. And although I've never witnessed it, then I could sit down and write an account based on his, and that could be extremely accurate in some cases. But that's a little bit about who this person was. Now, I keep saying we were going to bail out if we didn't finish. We're so far from finishing, we may not, we may not get to bail out. But the period of time. I'll summarize this one a little bit more quickly. Uh, Mark was probably writing, it seems, during the rule and reign of Claudius. Now, there's a lot that goes into that. He was married, Claudius at the time, was married to his fifth wife, best we can tell. Um, she was trying to get uh, in his shoes and to take over his reign, not his son, but her son, who happened to be Nero, who we're more familiar with, the whole point of that whole first paragraph is this. The Christians were already facing massive persecution. And so they're getting into those days, the lead up to that destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Persecution was at, as a, at, a, at a peak at that point. And so maybe John Mark, of course, inspiration played a role in this, no argument, no doubt. But maybe John Mark knew there was a need for a gospel account to be written. Uh, if you date these books out, I, I love to do chronological studies and lay these out. Mark is most likely the first gospel account to be penned. Uh, Matthew penned around exactly the same time, mid-50s, early 60s, time frame there. Uh, Luke runs about in 62 to 66-ish, a little later. And then John's account, depending on who you argue with on that, could have been anywhere from A.D. 70 to A.D. 96. So that kind of falls in the, the Gospel of John, the Epistles of John, and the Revelation as well that come into that fact. But uh, nonetheless, that's kind of the gist. And the, you can say there's more on the screen here than that. But sources suggest that that could be the time frame, I think, probably appropriately. 
There seems to be pretty good evidence, and of course Barnabas is one of those evidences because when he did leave that journey, uh, and later on Barnabas did take him to go on his own journeys, which are not recorded in scriptures completely or fully by any means. It wasn't a main focus of God to do so, but um, he does seem to continue to work. He's not a man, by the time Paul does mention him in 2 Timothy, uh, which probably would have been in the late 60s. Paul may have died in 67, 68 AD-ish. By the time Paul writes that, apparently John Mark has continued uh, to be faithful in his work. Um, I don't know if there's anything else much. We, we know that uh, Peter does mention, he calls him Marcus in 1 Peter 5 and verse 13, but he does mention, Peter mentions him much later as well, which would be actually later than Paul's writings. So more case that he continued in his work. So that's kind of the person of this as well as the period of time. So we got John Mark being the writer, writing between the mid-50s to 60s. That only sets the stage for what they were enduring at the time. And if we find some accounts throughout this gospel account, we'll point out the importance of that. Now, my extreme nerdery kicked in right here. Uh, Jennifer walked in and saw this printout on my desk the other day and said, did you do that? <laughs> Unfortunately, I did that. Um, there was one night I did not sleep at all, not one drop, one wink, and I stayed up and worked on a list you're about to see. There are 58, my counting, so you might find 55 or 59 or who knows what. There are 58 named individuals spoken of in the book of Mark. So therefore, they're all characters, they're all participants in the book. Of course, the main fixed stated focus ought to be on Jesus. He's the man of the book. He's the one to which we ought to name. In addition to those 58 named individuals, there are also unnamed individuals, so people that are spoken of in general, the blind man, the leper, the lame man, such as that. Uh, there are groups like the Pharisees as a group that are spoken of. The Herodians are spoken of in Mark's account and others. And uh, so I went through and made a list of those. Uh, of those 58 characters, I ended up, and I, I know... I know right out of the gate you can't see this. I don't intend you to. I know you can't write all this down. I've got a copy I can bring if you're really interested in it. But I ended up with three pages of those 58 groups. Again, those uh, different subgroups. Uh, listed here the way I chose to do it. We've got Old Testament characters. We've got demonic forces. We've got religious and political leaders. We've got Jesus' family. We've got the apostles themselves, which are named extensively in this. They take up a column and a half almost. Uh, other named disciples, Barnabas, Bartimaeus, and several others were a part of that. Some anonymous individuals, which are, again are spoken of like Simon Peter's mother-in-law. We don't know her name, but we know she was a specific person. So she would be more anonymous in that list. Um, the Jewish groups, which are extensive, they're, uh, I almost said aggravation. They wouldn't have been an aggravation to Jesus, but they were definitely a thorn in his side to one extent. Then generic groups, and also there are some characters in this last little sub-thing here. There are a number of characters that are mentioned in other Gospels, but that are not mentioned here. So some of those cross-references and Every one of those, I've got some references out beside as to where you might find them. But the whole point was to really to overwhelm our minds with a number of people that God chose to speak of specifically, but yet maintain Jesus as that one central character at the same time 
while doing that. What about the pace? We referred to this a few moments ago as well. Uh, the pace of the book is very quick. It is very fast paced. Again, that word immediately itself, or the Greek words for it, uh, being used somewhere between 42, or I say 40, uh, 41 or 42 times in that. Again, that's out of the 55 or 59 times that it's used. Matthew's account, this is just something you just see from thumbing through your own New Testaments. Matthew's account consists of 28 chapters, 1,071 verses. So Matthew takes up one of the longer ones there. Uh, Mark consists only, and there's not really much of an only here, but of only 16 chapters, 678 verses, whereas Luke takes up 24 chapters, 1,151 verses, so he, he takes the, the cake for the longest and most extensive. And then John, 21 chapters, 879 verses. Um, out of this, and this is something I did come across that I thought was very unique, out of this, Mark only speaks 31 verses, the way we divide it up as verses, obviously, by men. But Mark only speaks to 31 verses that other uh, gospel accounts do not. So only 31 verses are unique to Mark. I said on last Sunday was a week ago, it's kind of a Cliff Notes version of what the other gospels reveal. Sometimes what Mark says in one verse, they take a chapter or so to, to, to take care of or to expand upon. And you'll only find 31 unique verses supposedly in that. And of course, I've listed out those 41 times. Uh, there are several Greek words that back that up. The main one right here, this euthius, it means immediately or straightway. That one's found at least 41 to 42 times, not to mention some of the others as well. As a matter of fact, I made a list on this, and I added a couple categories from what I'd seen in other places. Immediately is used in all these verses. The word straightway used in all of those. I added the term now because I found it to be significant. The term now was used 20 some odd times, and I think there's 10 of these that I discovered. If you read the word in its context, it's speaking of the movement of Jesus. Now Jesus did this. Now he did that. You know, such as we might list out. That we're going to go to the store now. And that, that makes a transitional uh, phrase out of that word. And then forthwith is just another translation really of immediately and straightway. Used in those three. Soon. Again, a transitional word. And then the word anon. It is a one-time use in the New Testament. It's found only in chapter 1 and verse 30. And what it means is to move quickly, immediately with excitement. And I think it's wonderful that right in the first chapter of this book, Jesus' immediate movement, immediate account, is that which is also born in a very peculiar word, which implies as well his excitement. What's the point of the book? Really should have gotten a lot faster. Uh, John chapter 10, we mentioned verse um, 35 in this a moment ago, which is, uh, no, I'm sorry, what was it? Uh, 45, I'm sorry, right here. We mentioned that one a moment ago. This is the context of that, which you can read on your own time. That's just a reference, Mark chapter 10, 35 to 45. But that's where you get this message that he came to be a servant. He came not to be served, but in ultimately, or not to just be served himself, but also to serve others. So that's kind of the main point of this. When you take that text 
and summarize it. And this is, this is Jim Merle. This is not anybody else, so that any problem or issue with that, it's, it's on me. But Mark's gospel is what I refer to as a narrative uh, proclamation. Uh, a narrative just meaning there's a storyline to it. There is an account uh, pace that goes along with this. And so you read it like that. And, and that, for me, is a... I love to study Paul's epistles. That's kind of my, my forte, if that's, a, that's not a Mumford word by any means. But that's what I enjoy most. Uh, but when you read a narrative account, much of the Old Testament is written in narrative as well. You're reading an account or storyline that goes through, and you can follow it. And there's sometimes action, and Mark makes a point out of doing that. But with his point being uh, to call us to be faithful and obedient faith, oh, through obedient faithfulness and also be willing to bear our cross, Mark gets around to that as well. Now, we're down here at the very last, very small print. What about perspective? Uh, what is Mark's perspective? How does he write? What is the, the way that he views things? Well, we mentioned earlier that he focuses on the works of Jesus oftentimes rather than his word. His perspective is to write a very fast-paced, quick-moving book to keep not only the attention of, of some, but I suppose as well to get brevity in there so it might be read by others. Um, he does something very peculiar, and that is to the other Gospels, at least to some point. He writes primarily to a Gentile-slash-Roman audience. And there are many times where that is some, some evidence to that, just been the words he chooses to use, and how that he selectively, uh, in these last two paragraphs here at least, how he selectively translates words for them. You know, if they're Jewish... And he says, Bartimaeus, they know that means son of Timaeus. But he says that. I mean, it's written out. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. And so he goes through a lot of words like that. And he uses some terminology that would be proved to some extent, God's inspiration not taken out of this, but to some extent his access maybe had to higher learning. You know, Paul had much access to that. Studied the feet of Gamaliel and others. But John Mark uses not only... Uh, Greek language, which would have been you know, common Koine Greek of the day. He, of course, would know Hebrew because of the time frame and the family heritage coming in there. He uses Aramaic to some extent, and some of those words are more or less transliterated. He uses Latin in a few different terms, of course, are translated for us. But he, he seems to have access to a number of things as he, as he has um, reached to pull out, and God uses him for that as well and then one of the major points here in the last and we'll close with it he puts a huge emphasis on following Jesus not just his servitude not just uh, what he wants us to know about our Lord but the fact that we must follow that he mentions that 17 times throughout this book as best I can tell and that's that's it we'll call it today this is updated if you wanted to jot that down I changed the numbers I messed up so bad Sunday was a week ago, but that's one of the outlines. There'll be much shorter ones and so forth, much more expanding ones because I like to do that, that we'll cover. Any question or comments other than everybody go, we're done. Made it through. Glad to be done with that. That's external evidence. Internal evidence will start, Lord willing, on next week, and it'll mean going straight to the text and beginning the study of the text itself.